Hello again, folks. Welcome to another edition of the UK Paranormals Inside the Goblin Universe. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Ronald Murphy. I'm Brian Bowden. And good to see you again, Brian. Good, good. to have you on the show again. It's been one week since we've met, and now uh, we're, we're preparing for a whole brand new show today. And I think it's going to be kind of interesting today. We do not have any guests, but we do have a lot to talk about. Would you agree with that? I definitely agree. We, we definitely have a lot to discuss today. There's a lot going on. That's right. Um, we'll talk about some of our appearances this year, some of the conferences that we'll be attending uh, and such. But uh, I really kind of wanted to talk about um, uh, a book that has just uh, been released. Uh, it, it happens to be my book. It's a bit of a plug. But uh, I, I do wanted to talk a little bit about it because I do have a very keen interest in vampires. So uh, the book that has just been released, it was uh, published by the Center for Fortean Zoology out of Devonshire, England. Uh, so so uh, it, it is. Uh, it's called On Vampires. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, and I, I think we can probably chat for a little bit about this. Maybe you know, give it about twenty minutes to a half an hour, Brian, and uh, we'll see where it goes. I, I actually want to know more about vampires. Uh, I'm limited to uh, <laughs> I, um, movies and Vlad the Impaler, who uh, plays a big role today. Actually, if you go back to his history. Uh, and if you would look at uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula yes. that came out about 20 years ago, you know, that was who the character was based upon, you know. Uh, and, and if you would read uh, Bram Stoker's uh, the book, uh, Dracula, you do have the allusions to Vlad the Impaler because he's such an interesting historical figure. I mean, his 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 reign of terror, if you will, uh, was one that was soaked in blood. Um, but I think we'll talk about him in a little bit, too, because whenever we talk about vampires, what comes to mind are the images that are um, the media throws at you. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, everything from Bella Lugosi to the sparkling vampires in Twilight uh, yes. to, you know, everything. So I think that that's all very interesting. But uh, as a historian who has a keen interest in the paranormal, I kind of like to look to see where these things have come out of, what kind of primordial ooze they kind of uh, uh, clawed their way out of. And I like to look at them as archetypes. Now, an archetype, in order for an archetype to be created, it really has to have been with humanity from the very time we've left the savannah in Africa. You know, right. It has to be something very visceral. It has to mean something to us. Um, it's kind of like the the omnipresent boogeyman, if you will. <laughs> and, and that's the way I, I, I see, the, uh, see the vampire. So um, this book took me a little over two years to write. Uh, most of that was involved in doing the research to find out, you know, where all these kind of uh, images arose from. Um, but I find it found it very, very interesting that when we go back to about eleven thousand five hundred, we start seeing instances of what we would call vampires. Um, and, and luckily, we we're on the UK Paranormal Network <laughs> because. Uh, uh, because uh, in England, as a matter of fact, in about 11,500 B.C., um, in a place called Cheddar Gorge, right where we get the name from for cheddar cheese, uh, they found a cave there. And as the archaeologists uh, were, were excavating the area, they were able to find piles of, of animal bones that had been um, – that had been chopped up for slaughtering and, and processed. But right beside the animal bones were human bones. They, they were treated no differently. They were shown no kind of uh, special uh, uh, reverence or anything. But, they, but there was humans that were being hunted by other humans for food. 
Uh, there seemed to be no ritual attached to it. This was just a, a gastronomical uh uh, uh, you know, a type of thing that these these other human hunters were doing. They were preying upon other people. And I thought that this is very curious. And as I looked into this particular case, I was able to find out that uh, there were human skulls that were found in the Cheddar Gorge Cave that were actually fashioned into drinking goblets. And inside those skulls, was the remnants of human blood wow. so the people that were yeah the people that were hunting other humans were actually consuming their blood and, and as i've said as the research is showing this seems to have been done solely on a purpose of 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 eating them there was no other reason it doesn't seem to be a sacrificial or religious in nature of any kind it was just meant for uh consumption so this is a food-based type of of tradition that was going on so it's not necessarily it's not cannibalism yet or well, is it leaning towards that well we started with cannibalism because we ran out of food and then right. we moved into like you know what i like to yeah. taste the blood that, that's a good point that's a good point now england is a very interesting place um it was called the land of the living dead at this particular period because there were more people dying in england than were being born so Anybody that was coming into this and onto the island, it was a very rough go. It was hard to find food. Uh, there was a lot of predators in the air. We have to consider that there were bear and there were lion in, uh, in, in England at this time. Yes. So um, it was very tough going. So for humanity to make a foothold there, they had to do anything that they, they could do. And one of the things that they were able to do to survive was eat other humans. And that's what was going on. So in my opinion, the first instance of what we would call vampirism, because right. it was a consumption of human blood, was in this particular area uh, going back, you know, almost 13,000 years ago, which I find extremely interesting because this truly would have impacted who we are as human beings and how we looked at you know the consumption of human blood and also at other humans as being monsters as well and when we think of the idea of a vampire that is a human monster you know it is, it is a corruption of humanity oh yeah i mean it, it the, the whole image of of taking the essence of one for the lifeblood of another is just it's it does span a large history of it but the it's it's the psychology of it like thinking about this like why you know where did this come from someone must have said something or 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 thought the process well if i eat that i feel stronger so now if i eat a human i'm gonna even be that much stronger yeah, and I think that's a good point. I think whenever we look at shamanism in particular, especially whenever the consumption of a human body part or the consumption of human fluid was ritualized, right. then of course you see that it, taking on the power of such. Um, but uh, we go back uh, to uh, this period, whenever this, this particular event happened in England. Um, this happened in a, a time called the Younger Dryas period. Now, I know a lot of people probably aren't familiar with this period, but as far as my research is going into archetypes of, uh, of, of certain type of cryptids and certain other type of paranormal phenomena, I find that the Younger Dryas is a very crucial period in human development. Um, what had happened was um, previous to this, maybe 10,000 years previous to this, right. you start seeing um, instances on a very small scale of animal husbandry and of um, – 
growing your own food. There was some sort of agricultural cultivation going. As I said, nothing large scale. This was very uh, minuscule, but at least it was putting human beings on the right track. Right. Um, also, you had people coming together in very fortified little communities. If you would look at the Caucasus area of Russia, there were uh, – megalithic structures that people were actually living in, not even using them for, for, for graves or anything like that. People were actually building communities and forming um, – and they were forming societies at this time. But what had happened during the Younger Dryas and in a period of a matter of years – we're not talking about hundreds of years. We're talking about um, maybe a decade. The environment changed so drastically that all this kind of – proto farming that was happening shut down you know and people were no longer could stay in a particular area they had to become nomads again so what interests me about the younger dryas period is that humanity did have um have uh, an idea of civilization and i think whenever humanity had to go back into be a hunter or gatherer culture that this really shook us up who we are um, and a lot of our tells come from this time when we think about ideas of Atlantis you know we're ta talking about lost civilizations and I think that the idea of a lost civilization is very pertinent to the Younger Dryas period because it happened so quickly people would have told their children and their grandchildren tells about these great cities that once existed where you know people sat around fires and you know you didn't have to go hunting anymore and there was no fear i think that you did have this idea of utopia starting to develop right. in the imagination and a lost civilization as well because that's what was going on so that's what's going on in england at the time you know they call it the land of the living dead um but that's what was going on as well too that the, the the environment had changed so quickly that people that were used to being more sedentary now had to become hunter-gatherers, and it seems to me from all the research that I was able to gather that some groups of people were no, weren't very good at obtaining food, but they were very good at obtaining uh, humans to eat. You know, wow. uh, and so, so it seems that that's what was going on, my friend, and I think the idea of the vampire came from this. And also, interestingly enough, I think the idea of the werewolf came from this particular period as well too. If there was people – in England, um, you know, killing and processing human beings just as if they were an animal and cooking them and, you know, right. and all this other kind of stuff, then, then you can imagine in parts of Eastern Europe where, where wolves, you know, even places in Turkey to this very day have a fear of, of wolves. But you can imagine that there were, you know, there was the same type of people that were trying to eke out a living in, the, in this new world that has developed during the Younger Dryas, this, this second kind of uh, uh, ice age, if you will. And right. uh, when we think of the berserker, the Viking berserker that we're putting on bearskins to take on the the attributes of the bear, um, it, it seems to me, as far as the, an anthropological point of view, that there were probably humans that identified with the wolf and possibly even put on wolf, you know, wolf skins uh, in order to, uh, you know, hunt in packs and. It seems that maybe humans were hunted as well too, and that's yeah. a tradition that we have too in the Native American idea of skinwalkers. You know, one hundred percent. And and what what this does though, if you think about it, and you sit back and you're like, wow, how can these people go and just like, kill somebody next to them? Well, you know, there are the hunters that are going to be victorious, and then there are the people that 
they they're forced into a certain methodology of of survival um but when you when you have all this free time way back then um you have a, an ability to watch how the animals operate and how they how they you know they they calculate their prey and why they're successful and when you Im- embody that spirit of that animal by putting on its skin you become that animal um so i can see how this is is easily can progress from you know you have a great society there's a famine or a, an ice age or something comes where you now you're back on your own and you're not a hunter gatherer you are a just a a, a homebody or whatever and now you have to survive so the first thing you're going to do is go to the easy prey, which would be the people around you. That's uh, right. And, and, and I'm glad that you brought up that up too, Brian, because uh, what we find at the uh, at the Cheddar Gorge site is that the prey that was being was was being eaten that were that was human were children. Yeah. Uh, so again, so you, you find that they're they're able to go in probably some sort of quick raiding party, or they were lured out or whatever, and just w- w- a quick strike just to get enough food to go back, you know. And and what is interesting about this as well, my friend, is that whenever we look at the literature of the of the uh, Victorian period, or we look at the movies, you know, even today <laughs> yes. of vampires. Children are usually the ones that are in the most peril, you know, the young adults and things of this nature. And that all stems back from this lineage that stretches back to this, you know, this little mini ice age that occurred. And that and that builds the fear and that builds the folklore. Oh, be careful, That's your right. children. Do not leave them by the window or do, do not have a cat in the window because that attracts X, Y and Z. So, you know, I can see in folklore in, in a time and a place where they're not educated um, you know, in any way, shape, or form, and it's all hearsay. So you can tell whatever you want. It's kind of like the old internet, um, where you could just put it out there, fake news. But that fake news will have a dramatic effect, and people are very cautious about their children. But it is the easiest right, prey. You know, it is, it is the easiest prey. It, it, it was truly monsters, though, wasn't it, Brian? I mean, they, yes. they were human beings, but you know. They might not have seen themselves as monsters. They might have seen themselves as just being able to to get by. But the people on which they were preying upon definitely saw this as a menace, as something that came out of the night. These were indeed monsters. These were the things that go bump in the night. And that is really what has been embroidered into our DNA of humanity, this, this memory of human beings that were, you know, looking upon you as prey, and that that's with us to this very day. The, 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 it's it's and think about how frightening it is to be a person where this this is taking place maybe next door to you in the next cave or the next hut, and you see this person that you thought you knew come out, and there's blood all over their face, and they had this is satisfaction or almost like a hypnotic state for some of them that can't believe they had to go to that level and they fall into a madness and that that is such a fear and and it would scare the heck out of anybody um it's it's unexpected it's it's something you never thought would happen but it does happen and some people get the taste of that blood and they enjoy it um, it's a delicacy for them then the other people i was thinking when you were talking about the werewolf side of it and, and how that folklore and legend comes the people that can't deal with that term yet and and or react negatively to it depending on with the blood that they're drinking you know they transformed into some something else 
So, I mean, I see the folklore just popping out all over the place. Be careful of those woods. They're, they're, you know, you can get the vampires there. Or, That's, you know. And the allusion that you made to the werewolf is actually quite appropriate. That's actually where I was going to go to next. Um, the idea of transforming from a person into an animal, it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical transformation. It could be very well a mental transformation like you had just uh, talked about. Yes. Um, so, so the idea of becoming something other than yourself this madness is a real human fear as well look at look at whenever we think of the Lon Chaney uh, Wolfman movie you know even the person that says his prayers by night can still be transformed into this beast because if madness strikes you there's really little that you could do to ward yourself away from it yeah and and it's it's a once you lose control it's it's virtually impossible to get back that's right. And, and, that's right. And that's the madness. That's that's why people do what they do. That's why we have serial killers that's in, right. in this planet. Yep. And so another good point, and, and I know that we're going to be talking about uh, werewolves but uh, or about vampires, but to make a point about werewolves, um, in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, um, the people that were reported to be werewolves seemed to be people that had an insanity to them. You know, there was these very popular cases about people uh, claiming that they made a pact with the devil, and the and Satan himself was able to give them a skin of a wolf that magically transformed the wearer into a werewolf. I mean, this was probably all very psychological, you know, to them. It was a way that they were able to think uh, and, and actually get by through life to think that they're not insane. This was actually a curse from the devil itself because they don't have to take much responsibility. You know, their actions is something that was is very evil and they're being driven on by evil and it's not from within. It's from, uh, you know, impulses from without. You know, and that's a way that human beings can actually rectify what's going on in their lives. You know, that's kind of like, it's, it wasn't me, the devil made me do a type of thing. Yeah, and what what part of this is like human nature? Um, and I and, and it, even today, what part of it's human nature? What is that 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 secret little gene that we all have in, in our in our bodies that will flip that switch and get you to that point where it's it looks like it's sacri- sacrilegious, but it actually is part of human nature. I mean, we we know animals in the in the, in the woods in the forest they do eat their young, um, they will, out of just you know just to to kill, and then there are other animals that eat them for food. So you know. Just think about this way back when, before the organized religion, before all this stuff, and it's it's just I, I wouldn't want to live or grow up in that area. That, that, that's <laughs> or right. Error. But, but 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 as you said, I mean, people did progress. You know, they did finally leave the caves, and you know, the 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 weather had changed, the climate had improved. So you do see these great cultures starting to develop around. But they still had the idea of the the werewolf. They still had the idea of the vampire within it. You know, it never left. It was something that was carried on, um, which is interesting because whenever you come up to Egypt, which is probably the next great culture after this great upheaval that we had uh, during the Younger Dryas period, then you have Egypt that really makes a vampire-type creature as part of their cosmology of gods. Um, right. There is a there's a, a lion-headed um, uh, god that was the consumer of blood. You know, this was the kind of god that you would you would pray to before a battle because it was insatiable. You know, it, it had to feed upon um, upon the, the 
the blood and the flesh of others. Um, but there was also always the fear that there would be preying upon of children as well. Um, so you have these these kind of um, uh, I guess magical amulets to guard your child. Um, and also uh, with a civilization comes other problems such as disease. So now when we come up to the idea of walled cities like um, like Ur and, and Babylon and like Egypt, of course, and all these other places in the Fertile Crescent that is actually starting to really become civilized cultures, then what happens whenever there's unexplained disease and famine going through? Well, the best way to do that is to explain it, to personify it as some sort of evil entity preying upon that culture. So whenever babies died of sudden infant death syndrome, you know, it would look as if something had preyed upon them at night, you know. Right. And I think that that's what's going on next in our development of the idea of the vampire. The vampire now, after we've kind of tamed the hostile world around us, and we don't have to worry so much about humans preying upon us or about cannibalism. So what happens next in the evolution of the vampire is that outside forces such as disease and contagion and famine is now personified in the guise of the vampire. Right. And, and you know, what, what's what's great about it is that's what not only do we start becoming a civilized culture, but that's when the power grabbers came in and the, the holy people and the, the mystics. And they knew that the power they had over the people. Um, so they're preying on multiple ends of these these individuals or citizens of their of these new communities. And they're going to do it. They're going to go get those amulets and they're going to go fall in line with it. And if they that's don't, right. what you do is you go out and. You'll blame it on a vampire or or the god or whatever, but you'll sacrifice a couple of kids, throw them around, and it just it it just keeps feeding itself. It exponentially starts growing bigger and bigger and bigger to a point where um, it it becomes the folklore, but it has a life of its own. It does. It, it has a life of its own, and it continues. That's absolutely the correct. And there are cultures that sacrificed children to these bloodthirsty gods. That was part of their religion. But another thing that religion is, does as well, too, whenever we leave um, – uh, nature behind. Whenever we leave the idea of you know of forces that work against us, and we become a civilization, now we have the notion of good and bad. You know, there's no longer this gray area. You know, whenever yeah. lightning and thunder comes, this is the work of the gods. So now we have a religious aspect on it. So the vampire now becomes something evil. You know, and, and then, you know, the civilization is the good. So now the vampire becomes the other. It's the creature of the liminal areas. You know, it's the creature that lives right on the periphery of society. And if we think about it, that's what happens, you know, now whenever we think of the Bram Stoker character of Dracula, you know, this is a creature that exists outside of humanity. It exists in the woods and Transylvania. This is something that you have to go to and bring it back with you. You know, these are the ideas that really were starting to come together, you know, back at the very form formation of civilization that bears, you know, striking um, a reality today as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, you always have somebody who's not part of the, the group or their, the tribe or whatever. And the fact that they do do choose to live outside of the community, that alone sets off that whole, well, what's wrong with them? And then some will come, well, he's evil, he's a vampire, he's, you know, and it, it just it just starts breeding legend after legend after That's right. legend. 
Now, let's take that to the next logical conclusion, the next step. What happens if these people that were excommunicated from society had some sort of birth defect or some sort of you know, um, physiological problem? See, at that point then, especially if there is a physical difference in the person, then there is more lore attached to this. So when we talk about people with uh, a, a, congenital, a congenital disease called porphyria, you know, that yep. – that, that, uh, see – you can imagine a group of people that were thrown out of their civilization uh, because they they were different. You know, they, they they had a sensitivity to sunlight, and they were you know basically thrown out, and they came together to form their own certain little community. And within that community, you had you know a breeding population of people that were able to pass this on to their offspring. Then you do have a culture outside of the civilized culture. You know that would appear to be uh, monsters in the eyes of those who lived in the city. Yeah, and and that again breeds it. So you have the people that are have a problem with the sunlight. You have a people that have um, I forgot the hair syndrome that look like werewolves. Um, that's right. Yeah, hypertrichosis. Exactly. Hyper, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. And, and what's yeah, what's interesting is that whenever we look at places on um, medieval maps that show uh, areas where these dog-headed people live, it was in portions of coastal Africa and coastal um, India. So that is part of that. That's why I've come to the conclusion, uh, uh, Brian, is that uh, I think that people were that were born with certain defects, hypertrichosis being one, uh, porphyria being another one, uh, that they would be. Um, Exposed. I, that was a common occurrence. Even whenever we think of the Greek and Romans, these great societies, you know, that our laws are built upon and our arts and entertainment is built upon, um, these societies had no problem taking a child that was born with a defect and letting it out into the woods. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and they had they took on no responsibility for this. If the child lived, it was the God's will, and if the child died, it was the God's will. They weren't killing the child. So if you could imagine a child being born with some sort of defect, being taken out into the woods, you know, you're you're always going to have somebody that cares for, you know, another human being. So, you know, I can see that, you know, somebody would come across the child and have pity on it and raise it or possibly even, you know, another part of this group that was thrown out of society and kept right. at bay would take it as their own. So, I mean, th these things do come into into play. So the places in India and the places of uh, of Africa on, on these ancient maps that uh, have the drawings uh, – a dog-headed man, I truly do believe that these ideas were sprung from small colonies of people that were excommunicated from regular society because of a defect. Oh, and that happens That happens all over the place. You talk about we people, too, uh, uh, people that, you know, the, on the on the midget side or, or, or uh, in famished or extremely tall giants. Um, it, you know, that comes from the lack of education of people. But however, and, and as you pointed out, you know, the the first person to get thrown into the woods is thrown to the wolves. And if they survive, then they kind of learn how to survive out there. The next person that goes, and the third and the fourth, and you know, then they do build that community. And I think part of the people, uh, because of their disdain for how they were treated, um, they build up this animosity towards the, the good-looking people. And not that they become the wolf. For example, you know the the werewolves or, or whatever, but they they go and do, do raids just to say, you know, damn you, damn all of you, and uh, and I, that builds it up again too, and then 
maybe the, the werewolf people had you know go after the the people um who are suffering from you know uh, exposure to the sun and, and there's there's your werewolf vampire fights and yeah and, and that also is a very good point because we're talking about class distinction. We're talking about one yes. party ruling over another. And, of course, there's going to be this, as you said, this, this clashing between the two. Um, to take this into uh, very uh, poignant contrast, um, we have in the Renaissance this, this this figure of Madame Bathory, who was <laughs> a very rich countess, you know. Yes. And, you know, so, and she would prey upon uh, the young peasant girls who were not going to be missed, and she would um, bathe in their blood uh, in order to achieve some sort of eternal youth, which she believed would, would happen. But if you would look into the details, which I, I describe in in, 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 in in detail within my book on vampires, um, you know, it, it was a very uh, sadistic type of murder. She just didn't kill people. She basically tortured them to death for whatever reason. I mean, obviously, this woman had some very deep psychological problems as well. But um, our idea of you know vampires and sexuality, this all was mixed in with a Madame Bathory legend as well, too, because there was a lot of strange things that happened here with that woman, and she eventually died in uh, in, uh, in 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 prison. She wasn't executed or anything, but you know, she killed a great many people uh, who were considered insignificant because they were. Definitely just, you know, they were poor people. Yeah, and it, it's funny when you mention the royalty and, and people of, of power. There actually are some um, images that you can actually find on the Internet of some people of royal background that that had the uh, hyper tri- uh, trichosis. And right. you'll see them, and, and it's it's kind of interesting. Some people think, oh, is that that's a fake photo, right? That's a fake painting. No, that's the real deal. Um, it was accepted in certain cultures. When you get to the, that Russian, uh, Eastern European area, uh, there are people that do... Um, can grow hair rem- remarkably and That's all over and they get this you know it's just part of their dna um but so it's a little bit more acceptable there but if you if you're coming in from let's say the savannah and you go into into uh ukraine with current day ukraine you see that you know that's going to scare the hell out of you. It's going to scare – that's right. And that's another good point as well because it does come out to be uh, genetics. You know, whatever yep. is, is is displaying, you know, physiologically that you can physically see, that does come into play. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, – what we would discuss about uh, uh, hair uh, on a on a person it was one of the hallmarks in the Middle Ages to tell if the person was in actuality a werewolf. Uh, they said if there was hair on the palm of the hand, that showed that the person was truly a werewolf. Uh, so you could tell even before they trans transformed into the animal that what their true nature was. It was an outward manifestation of an inward spiritual state. Right, and I, you know, when you said that, the the first scene I got was. Uh, uh, um, I've got the actor Dom DeLuise in that old movie and I know one of you is a werewolf and that's actually what they used to determine who is the werewolf look at your palms and and, and you see these 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 palms that are hairy and, and you know so someone runs away I mean it, it's 
pretty interesting how they pick up those little nuances on people. Well, you have three moles on your forehead. So. That, that's that's right. That's right. I mean, th- that's the kind of thing that they were doing in 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts in order oh, yeah. to deem that you were a witch. So, I mean, it doesn't take much for a human being to convince themselves that there's an evil among us. And then human beings also like to blame people and have a scapegoat. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that happened to these, you know, the witch, whenever we think of witch hunts, you know, witch hunts also involved werewolf hunts and vampire hunts that was all kind of thrown in there because all these all these type of people were considered to be in league with the devil right and and throw into that the the psychotropic effects of rye seed that's on there and and you know and and it's dark and it's a scary period you know there's no light and i mean anything you your worst fears or imaginations that that people will prey on you when you went to a church or whatever the devil's going to get you you start sure. seeing these things you see a, a woman there i mean it's it's incredible um you know how that happens incredible it, it, that's right but you know that that's the other good point so let us look just for an instance on um on uh, colonial uh, new england so when we talk sure. about places like um salem um it would have been a howling wilderness. You know, there would have been Indians that were, you know, right on the very periphery, even in 1692. I mean, right. this is early on. We also have a very staunch puritanical religion. So the devil was in the details. The devil was prowling about this town looking for the ruin of souls, you know. Oh, yeah. So all this kind of stuff had to play. So there were wild animals going on. So the idea of a witch was not something so bizarre to them. Now, this this actually was quite logical to Puritan New England at the time. So the, the, the Salem witch hunts came at a perfect time. But uh, one of the things that we also must take into consideration, uh, in the 1600s, this kind of stuff was going on all over the world. It was happening in France and Germany and England, these great witch trials. you know. So again, history doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, there was other things going on in the world at the same time. As a matter of fact, there was a gentleman who was about 80 years old, uh, and this happened in – I believe it was in Switzerland. Don't uh, don't uh, uh, quote me on that, <laughs> but I know that it was in one of those particular uh, 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 countries that uh, have, has snow and good chocolate nowadays. But um, – <laughs> It, it was in 1692 as well. An older gentleman came before a tribunal, and he was accused of being a werewolf. Now, this is where it becomes quite interesting. And I, if I could go back in time, I would like to party with this guy for a little bit because um, he did not deny that he was a werewolf. Actually, he he told them. He, he, he was very forthright. He said, I am indeed a werewolf. Now, you can imagine an 80-year-old man telling this, but – now, here comes the great uh, little switch in this whole story. He was a werewolf that was working on behalf of God. So now we get the idea of religion turning upside down, and we're seeing God using these types of monsters to do his will. Because what had happened, he told the tribunal, is that certain types of the year, witches are able to come out of hell and, and, and do their deeds against humanity. So what God has done in his infinite wisdom as he has created an army of werewolves that battle these witches that come out of the gates of hell. And actually the tribunal believed him. Now they still, of course, gave him a couple lashes and sent him on his way, but he was released and he was not executed, which I find, you know, this is one of those great stories that come out of uh, my research on werewolves and vampires and witches and everything, that there 
were people that said, yes, indeed, I am a werewolf, but I'm working on behalf of God, and people believe them. <laughs> that is genius. That is, it is that's genius. pure genius. That that that's where, and and someone who is so much smarter than the the entire community can take advantage of the community by using their own logic against them. Yes, but Brilliant. you know what? Yeah, but but the, the illogical also happened because you would get these snake oil salesmen <laughs> coming through all these little small towns in Europe, and they were selling all these kind of devices to ward against witches and werewolves and vampires, and they were making a living off of this. You know, yeah. it, actually, if we even go the whole way back in time and we go to the uh, to the idea of Samaria you know this this kind of you know ancient idea of these kind of uh, cultures uh, you know loosely linked around these uh, these little uh, uh, waddle and daub huts and things like that there were people even at that point selling amulets to ward against you know creatures such as Lilith which was one of these you know um, great figures that you know kind of has vampiric qualities to it right. but uh, they were selling amulets to to ward against the creatures of the night even back in ancient Samaria well it's interesting how you know there's always there's always one group of people that see the opportunity to benefit off of the entire situation <laughs> and the snake oil salesmen but the ones with the amulets they the, you know the, the start of the 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 hard sell the quick sell you know it's like that's right that's you right know, if you get this amulet of david he's gonna that's stop everything and people <laughs> believe in it and that's exactly what had happened too because people were selling amulets so they could hang it near where their baby slept so they would it wouldn't be preyed upon by these forces of nature and by these forces of darkness and things of that nature so yeah definitely that's what people were doing they were saying you know i have a child there's other children dying in my area you know and they they promised them something they said here take this everything will be okay and i think that's very interesting but uh i mean uh, the university of uh, pennsylvania has a uh a, quite a display on these kind of amulets uh toward against these creatures of the night and uh, you know there was house blessings for it there was ways to drive this evil out of homes and people would sell them as amulets or even sell them on little bowls that you could put in your house so that was a big business and, and not only in, in antiquity but you know even now if you think about it people still are buying crucifixes to hang it up in their St. house christopher medals um, St. Christopher has even, be, has even been declared a non-saint by the Catholic Church, and people still use the St. Christopher medal. Well, you, know, you see it in, if you go into Pennsylvania. We were in the Amish country about a year ago. We took the kids there, and um, you see it on the barns. And those uh, – I forgot what they're actually called, but they're almost like amulets. The circles on top of barns, the different colored uh, pentagrams or – or or patterns that they have. I think that the if I'm correct, the blankets were not only uh, functional for uh, keeping you warm and sleeping with, but I, uh, the protective pattern put into it. And uh, you know, absolutely yes, yeah. The cover yourself for protection, yeah. you know. Yeah, the, the little local term for that is these 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 hex symbols. You know, hex. that's what they call them. Yeah, that's and right. it was the, to, to ward off. You know, the the. Now, we're talking about a very puritanical group. We're talking about a very religious group that still employs natural magic to keep their world free of evil. As close as you're going to get to pretty much the Puritans up in, uh, up in uh, you know, Massachusetts and the witch hunts, they are as the closest you're going to get today in that type of philosophy. 
with without a doubt yeah. and you still see them employing you know magical symbols in a christian society because if you cannot explain it and you cannot ward against it in christian terms then they are turning to the more pagan ideas of nature battling nature yeah and and it, it but here's the here's the, the the big part of that it works See, if it works for one, then it works for all. And you don't need to prove anything further than it worked for one person. That's I was right. protected That's... by this blanket. I was protected by this hex amulet. I would... As soon as it happens, it becomes part of their society. That's right. That's right. And if we think again, let's let, let's take a look back at, at our historical surveys so far. That's what was going on. These amulets had worked at least in certain cases, and it comes to us even today. You know, uh, of course, it's been Christianized, but it happens to this very day that people still have amulets and they still have magical charms on them and things. Think of a charm bracelet. I mean, its origin is from a magical idea that you know you were charming yourself against forces of evil at work in the world well it, it you know one of the things that, that I, I always pick up on on amulets is uh, when the building of the temple uh, by Solomon um, he used an amulet to control supposedly uh, the, the jinn and they, he was controlling all these creatures and they were the ones that 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 built the temple that's why it was built so fast that he so, had the so, power given to him by god um to control him with this this ring so solomon's ring and the seal of solomon is very huge as far as a protective device in multiple cultures not just judaism but pretty much throughout the middle east um and you'll see it everywhere it's pretty interesting <laughs> And what's cool about that story, Brian, is that Solomon was using forces of evil to yes. do good. You know, that's the other thing, too. You know, so it's all a very gray area. You know, magic is basically forbidden in, in the Old Testament, you know, writings. You know, actually, even it's, it, it's, a, uh, it's punishable by death. But, you know, you see magic being employed to harbor and to, to, to kind of uh, – um, force evil things to do your bidding in order to do good which i find you know it's almost mind-blowing to think about that but it's in also poetic very, <laughs> that's right that's right that's right very poetic uh, right there but I'm glad you brought up the idea of the jinn because um, our idea of a ghoul, a G-H-O-U-L, the, the ghoul is part of this jinn philosophy as well. The belief in the jinn also is, comes in, in play with our, our vampiric study is because the ghoul within that particular class of beings called the jinn, you know, they were known to raid graves and devour the newly dead and sometimes even inhabit the body of the newly dead and work as you know as the uh, the driving force behind this dead vessel to do their bidding as well so when we think of the vampire and the creation of the vampire you know you also have to look at all these other different cultures and the islamic culture especially their development of the jinn also comes into play with how we look at the vampire to this day right and and it's really interesting when you go into magic itself as we know it today, uh, the, the the classic magician, abracadabra. Well, uh, general abracadabra pretty much means I create what I speak. Um, there, there you go. And that's and, why it's used the way it is. I think it's Aramaic and, and it goes roughly back then. So that's the control that was used with Solomon in the temple and using the ghouls and, and the jinn. And, um, it's, it's when you start going into the layers as i said previously of this of this subject matter it goes so deep and you just open yourself up to so much information 
that it's not just about what goes bump in the night, what scares you, or what's the you know par- paranormal activity fifteen or whatever. <laughs> um, you got to really start like thinking about it in different different angles and seeing how something in England twenty thousand years ago has transformed throughout the world. You know, that's right. That's right. And that's what we're here to do, uh, Brian, inside the Goblin Universe. We try, try to take this a step further. We try to look a little bit deeper into the mirror. I mean, we look at the, the, this Jungian mirror that exists within the shadow of everyone, and we see ourselves initially, but if we look a little bit deeper into our reflection, we truly see what lies behind you know, the creation of all these great archetypes. And then uh, I'm glad to have you aboard because you know, I, I, I love talking about this stuff so much and to find out you know, why we believe in things like Bigfoot and mermaids and all this other kind of stuff, but I think you know it's absolutely fantastic that that we have a show on the Paranormal UK Network that we're able to talk about this kind of stuff. You know, I'm I'm glad to be part of the trip. Someone's got to carry the uh, holy water, salt, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the spikes, steaks, the stakes. Right. Um, you know, keep yeah. that sorted out. Uh, but it, it is a, it's a fascinating ride, and with the Paranormal UK Radio Network. You get it not only uh, on our show inside the Goblin Universe, but you get it with a lot of other the, the, the hosts that are here. So it's it's like an education. It's almost like a university of paranormal. Um, and we're majoring <laughs> it in the Goblin <laughs> Universe right now, which is pretty much an overview of what's going on there. But um, it's great being part of this. And I love the subject matter enough. I've loved it since I was a kid. I love researching it and getting more information about it and seeing those little nuances and it kind of makes me smile when i see certain things that i know is you know how it developed from point a to point b that's right because nobody nobody really talks about that anymore you know people are going out there with equipment looking for for ghosts or they take the tour of the vampire walk down in new orleans and they they have the idea of what these things are but you know they don't understand where they came from and everything comes from something there's an origin to all this kind of stuff and as far as the goblin universe is concerned that's where these things are coming from so we try to really get back to the very beginning and the very genesis of these things and i'm uh, i'm glad you know the our listeners are along for the ride this is this is great you know we have we have listeners globally and um every every culture that that's you know in, in country that is is getting into the goblin universe they have their own folklores there and they can pick up on those nuances but one of the cool things that they can do also is and i was going to ask you about this earlier is they there's a lot this tis the season coming up for all these conferences where we can start meeting people and and discussing this in an open forum without getting uh, chastised for talking about it or you know sacrilege <laughs> but uh, i know That's that right. you know <laughs> it's it, it's a great way to get out there i know you you're going to be at a, a a bunch of different events, I, I believe, if I'm correct. So I, I, I am, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that now because truly, I mean, I, unfortunately, I'm not going to be in Europe this year. And I know, Brian, you're not going to be in Europe this I'd year. I'd love either. to be in Europe this year. <laughs> yeah, but, but next year I definitely want to get out there because, like you had said, so much of our listenership is from the United Kingdom and from Europe. So we definitely will make plans to be there next year. But for those people that are listening in the United States, um, I will be at several places. And um, if, if you're around the western Pennsylvania area – or the eastern part of the United States, uh, the uh, the 
first um, uh, place that I will be, and I, I guess by the time this airs, it will probably be over, but April 1st, I will be at the uh, Butler Paranormal uh, Conference, and this is really the first kickoff of the season for my area. Uh, and then the first week of May, I will be at the Bigfoot Camping Weekend yes. in Farm- yeah, Farmington, Pennsylvania. I'm that looking looks forward good. to that. That looks it, it does look good. Um, and you know what? That's the other thing, too, is I'm, I'm into cryptozoology and I'm into Fortean studies, but I really do not like to go camping. It's one of, it's not one of my things. I'm not good at it. Um, if I had to camp and live off the land, I would be dead in a day. I have no, no, no <laughs> bumps about that. But uh, I will be there, and hopefully um, I speak on that Sunday. So it starts Friday. It will be there Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and a couple of the guys from the uh, television show Monster, uh, Monster Hunters – not Monster Hunters, a Mountain Monster. Mountain monsters, yeah, I saw yeah, that. So, yeah, so they'll be there. But um, then I will be up in uh, the New England area uh, at the uh, Ocean State Paracon. I believe that's in July. So people that are, and that's going to be in Rhode Island. So that's what I'm going to hope to run into you, Brian, and finally get the chance to talk to you in person. Yeah. I, I go through your neck of the woods up there. But uh, so anybody in the New England area wants to come, that would be great. Um, I'll be doing Cryptid Con in uh, Frankfort, Kentucky, and that's with uh, some guys from Finding Bigfoot and Ghost Adventures and such. So I'll be looking forward to that as well. And then in October, I will be in Vancouver, British Columbia. So anybody in Canada that wants to come to that, that's perfect as well, too. Any Bigfoot um, be hunting doing- up there? I, 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 I want to so badly. That Pacific uh, again, Northwest, Brian, that's where we, where it all started for about probably both yeah, of us. <laughs> uh, exactly. But the whole thing is, though, that might require camping, Brian. And as, uh, and as I told you, I, <laughs> but I will, <laughs> I will definitely take some pictures of the big trees, definitely, without a doubt. No problem. Um, <laughs> but um, I also will be at the Kecksburg. Uh, Awesome guys, listen. If there's any MUFON people out there, or anybody that has an interest in UFOs, um, I will be at the uh, Kecksburg. uh, UFO Festival. Um, this is in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, um, and it is the site of a supposed spaceship crash uh, back in the 1950s, just a little bit after Roswell. So I urge anybody that has an interest in UFOs uh, to come out, not just because I'm going to be speaking there, uh, but because it's really an interesting thing. I think it really impacts on how we look at the idea of UFOs. But uh, yeah, those are the places that I'll be at. I'll be at a, a few other things, but uh, I I really want to go out there and meet people, and I want the listeners to come out and say, hey, we listen to Inside the Goblin Universe. I would love that. So, Brian, what about you? Where are you going to be at? Well, I'm going to actually try to visit you over in the Rhode Island area. Um, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm in, a, in, a, in a weird flux, but the one thing I'm definitely going to be at in uh, May, up uh, 19th, 20th, I think 21st, up in Pine Bush, New York, uh, site and home of the Hudson Valley sightings, where, where it pretty much started. It is a really big hot spot. They have a UFO festival. Uh, last year, um, when I was with a group, we did a presentation there. I'm not going to do a presentation now, but I'm definitely going to be walking around, talking with everybody, meeting some friends, and uh, I believe Travis is going to be up there, Travis Walton. So, um, wow, very nice. I'd definitely nice. like to have two minutes with him, shake his hand, and uh, just you know appreciate his courage coming forward and doing what he does. Um, so I definitely want to talk to them. There's a couple other celebrities that will be there, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get to the Kecksburg and uh, actually up in Rhode Island. I mean, it's uh, within reason where I'm not gonna get yelled at. Uh, for, That's uh, maybe I'll take the kids with me because they've always wanted me. Like, oh, if you're gonna go get Bigfoot, can bring them home for a tea party. I'm like, okay, honey. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, that, that's a good good point, Brian, because you know I have children as well too. So 
I like to go to these events that are deliberately family-friendly. Uh, the Bigfoot Camping Weekend, 100% is family-friendly. I mean, it's camping and everything. Oh, yeah. So it's really going to be a fun time. But, yeah, you know, I urge anybody out there, if you have a child that has a liking for this kind of stuff, my mother was very big on fueling my imagination, letting me go out there and do what I wanted to do and everything. And ever since I've been a child, you know, she's always taken me out on Bigfoot hunts and everything. So, you know, if you have a child, I would say a lot of these conferences cost, you know, eight or ten bucks. Take your child out there, you know, let them take a look around. I think it's great for a kid to actually see people that are on TV. And, you know, you might have a future little, you know, cryptozoologist out there. Or a researcher or a scientist that wants to, you know, really pin it down as well. Um, what I like like about these conferences and getting and getting my kids involved in it in, in a subtle way because it does get scary for a lot of people um but if it gets them to start reading more um and interested in the subject you can't go wrong depending on how old your children are uh but it, it's definitely worth it's a family time moment and you should really be there it's fun to go camping uh i'm okay in camping i don't prefer to do it i prefer <laughs> to sleep on something a little bit softer than that uh but you know what Go out there, have fun, be with nature. We're uh, too many people are in the cities, and too many people are looking at cell phones. Put the cell phone down, walk around, look at the trail, smell the smell the air, um, and enjoy it. It's really not that expensive to be at these events. You get That's to meet right. Ron. You get to meet some of the other <laughs> you know paranormal celebrities that you see on TV as well as you've read about, and it's just something interesting. This is the spark that we need to. You know, get excited about things and be happy about stuff. Yeah, um, and that's another good point, Brian. If you are unable to make a conference, nothing is going to stop you from going outside. You know, when we talk about werewolves and vampires and and Bigfoot and things like that, none of this stuff makes sense unless you take a walk in the woods every now and then. You know, it, it, we have to really get in touch with you know the nature side of who we are as human beings we have to you know that's one of the things that is being lost on us you know we're 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 kept awake by electric lights and our 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 natural body rhythm is out of tune every now and then it's good like you said turn off the cell phone take a walk in the woods and really feel what it feels like to be a human being again yeah, it, it, uh, one of the things that I, I was very interested in when I was growing up, because I liked pirates and treasure, um, was uh, metal detecting. And I, I purchased a couple of inexpensive ones. You can get them online, really inexpensive, some of the kids. And, but you just go out. There's a great thing where they do geocaching. And you take most cell phones now have a, a GPS unit, or you can buy one inexpensively. And it's like a treasure hunt. People put things in little boxes around, and you have to follow the clues. But it gets them to think. It gets them outside. It gets them. If you're going to use a piece of electronic equipment, use use a metal detector. Use a, a GPS unit. Listen to the sound, um, and just get out there. Enjoy it. it. It's it's really fun. We're we're missing out on a lot that's going on around us. Be careful though. I mean, the woods can be dangerous. Um, I'm just going to tell you, if you're going to go out hunting with your kids, definitely protect yourself. Um, I would say prayers if you're if you're a religious person. Burn sage over yourself. When you before you go out, as well as when you come back, um, you don't want to take things with you back, and that is possible from not my personal experience, but I've I've seen it and I've seen it happen to people. 
but it's still worth the trip. Go out there and do it. You know, it is. That's right. That's right. And another thing, Brian, that you can bring back with you that is not going to be evil is my new book on vampires. Yes. Bring that back with you. Now, 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 this book, as I've said, it is it's published by the Center for Fortean Zoology. It was typeset and edited by the great Jonathan Downs, who I'm very flattered to have had do wow. that for me. Uh, but it is available at your bookstore now. You can go right to you know your nearest bookstore, and if it's not there, they can at least order it on Vampires by Ronald Murphy Jr. Um, I, I use the junior on there to separate myself from the other Ronald Murphys out there, and there's a plethora of them. Uh, but uh, or you could go to you can still get it on Amazon uh, UK or Amazon.com here in America. And I urge you to pick it up and, and look through it and read it. And uh, please get back to me and let me know. Give me some feedback because you know after I write any of my books. I am always left with a question mark, and I think that that's a good thing because there's always more questions that are left unanswered. So if you folks really want to talk to me and have a dialogue with me about anything that I write about, and I do write about vampires and Bigfoot, and I even have a book out on mermaids and, and uh, you know all these other things, please feel free. Let's have a dialogue. Let's have a conversation because I truly have a passion for talking about this kind of stuff, and if you get a chance to meet me in a person, stop by my, my, my booth and we'll talk in person I, i'm looking forward to it and that's great about going to the conferences they can meet you and in in the book do you have a way for them to connect with you um, you know what um, I, I i was hoping that there was but i just got my uh, uh shipment in two days ago as a matter of fact and i do not think that i put anything in there um but they can get in touch with us through the uh paranormal uk uh radio network. uh Right, exactly, through the radio network. Yeah, and another definitely... another way they can get in touch with us, and this is for future broadcasts. If you're listening to the show, you have a guest you'd love to hear on, you have a question you want to ask Ron, myself, or a guest, or propose, um, I, we set up an email address. It's, it'll be ready for the show. It's called questions at insidethegoblinuniverse.com. Just send it there. It'll come to us. We may not be able to respond to you directly, but we will definitely try to answer your questions online which is what we do on the show. And it's another way you can discuss Ron's books with him. Just send him a question and he'll, he'll get back to you. you know, he'll uh, we'll we, figure out a way we, to get for you to get back to him. We definitely, because you know, Brian, it, it, without the listeners, this is just you and I talking to each other, you know, and that's, that's the thing is that th I really want this to be an organic show. I want people to, to, to give input and, you know, take things from it. Um, and I, as you know, we're just getting started in this again, you know, this is only about our, our third or fourth show into it right now under its new, uh, you know, its new manifestation of inside the Goblin universe. And I really want our listeners to get in touch with us, let us know what they think. And I really want to grow a fan base because, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of anybody out there that has an interest in this and uh i'm looking forward to uh to having this open dialogue yeah you know this is why i love the subject matter that much i i, I love meeting new people i love discussing these things with people you get some great ideas and great theories or concepts you may not have even thought of um coming to and that that opens you up to more research and more ideas and we you know once you get a dialogue on this you'll, you'll find how interesting it is and how it does play a part in a lot of our world um, we, we see it every day in the Goblin Universe. It's called the horoscope. Go look at your horoscope today. It's part of the Goblin Universe. Um, That's right. That's and right. That's... It's not hocus pocus. It's not magic. And it's not sacrilegious. Um, it's, it's part of the world. Enjoy it. I enjoy it. I know Ron definitely enjoys it. And he's, he's written some amazing books. So you should definitely pick those up. And when bring them. Or I don't know, Ron, if you'll have books on sale um, when you go to some of these conferences. 
But you know what? Say hello to Ron. Ask some questions. Maybe he'll sign a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I do take my books with me. You know, that's that's uh, that's kind of my job now. And um, if, if you continue want to see me having a home and things to eat, <laughs> I would urge you, you know, to pick up a book. That would be great. <laughs> yes. Pay the internet bills for Inside the Goblin that's Universe. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then maybe my kids will respect me again. Now, my, my little kids definitely respect me. But the <laughs> older ones, of course, they say, Dad, are you seriously doing this? Why don't you just go out and get a job? And uh, so uh, as long as you guys keep on buying my books, I'll be okay because, you know, if, if the books don't sell, then the next place that you will see me next year is whenever you get your card at Walmart and I say, you know, thank you for shopping Walmart. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, I would much rather see you at a conference, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a rough feel these days. It's a rough feel, but it's, you know, it's enjoyable. And it is enjoyable. I would I would rather do nothing else besides this. I am having a blast. I'm having a blast with the uh, Paranormal UK radio network and with you, Brian, as my co-host. So I mean, I'm I'm truly happy. That and that that's all you can even think about in life. I just want to be happy. That's 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 the key to success, everybody. If you want to know what that's it right. is, happiness. That's Whatever right. makes that's you happy. Right. Um, um, and, you know, what will make you happy is uh, On Vampires by Ronald Murphy Jr. I would recommend you buying that book and, you know, um, and sleeping with a steak close to your bed and some garlic. <laughs> some you, garlic. You, you, you can't beat that as well either. But uh, my friend, Brian, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this hour of exploration inside the Goblin Universe with you. But I think that we are almost done. I do believe so. I think it's time to... Uh, Return back to our coffins. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. The daylight is slowly dawning, and it's time for us to return to the dirt from which we came. So, yes, guys, I'll tell you, all my listeners out there, all of our listeners out there, I thoroughly enjoyed this uh, trek with you inside of the Goblin Universe on the Paranormal UK radio network. And until next time, I'm Ronald Murphy. I'm Brian Bowden. And we'll see you next time.